Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Looking for a great book to take on vacation to the beach or the backyard this summer? Then this is the show for you. And not only you, but young readers too. It's an encore edition about literature that features climate change as its foundation. The different works we touch on take different approaches to the topic, but they all want readers to think about what a warming planet means for all of us. The best storytelling captivates readers. On our show, we hope listeners will be similarly enthralled and inspired to dive into the books we're spotlighting here. I think about it pretty often. Sometimes it just kind of pops into my mind and stuff. I'm pretty scared that people don't do things soon enough until it is too hard and too far past the breaking point to fix. That is Ivy Bryce. She's 10 years old and she's already worried about climate change and what it will mean for her future. She also loves books. And lucky for her, a growing number of kids' books about climate change are being published. Our producer, Kristen Nelson, spoke with kids and authors about this growing trend in children's literature, and she joins me now. Hi, Kristen. Hi, Laura. How are you? It's great to be here. I'm well, thank you. How are you doing? Have you read any good books about climate change lately? You know, not lately, but I do have very vivid memories of reading Barbara Kingsolver's book, Flight Behavior, right after my first daughter was born. And it stayed with me because this it's an allegory about how losing the monarch butterflies might be a sign of things to come, of what we're going to lose with climate change. And now I have two daughters who are worried about nature and animals they hear about climate change, and I've been looking for books to help them get their heads around it. Okay, well, that I mean, we know it's a lot for adults to face when we talk about climate change. There's so many emotions, so much to think about. And for kids, it must be so much more even to be able to just grasp it. So, so what have you found? Well, first off, that there's a lot of great books out there. Just a couple weeks ago, our colleagues at CBC Books, they compiled a list of Canadian books for kids to read on Earth Day. And we'll tweet that out so people can find it if they're interested. And it really does look like both the supply and the demand of these kind of books is growing. And there's some actual market research out there that shows sales of children's books about the environment grew nearly 70 percent between 2019 and 2021. I'm going to tell you about just two books that were written with the input of experts in the field. Okay, well, but experts in what? Experts in kids or experts in climate change? (laughs) Well, both, actually. One is co-authored by internationally renowned climatologists 
paleontologist Michael E. Mann. It includes some digestible science for kids. But the first book I want to tell you about is called Coco's Fire, Changing Climate Anxiety into Climate Action. Now, this book follows the story of a lovable little squirrel named Coco who has to face her fears about climate change. It's written by Jeremy Wurzel, his partner Lena Champlin, and a group called the Group for the Advancement of Psychiatry's Climate Committee. You don't often see that on book authors' placements. So psychiatrists were actually working on the book. Exactly. Yeah, they're they're co-authors this committee, um, and the book is specifically written to address the concerns of a kid like Ivy. She read the book, and we're going to hear from her again in just a little bit. But first, we'll hear from one of the authors, Jeremy Wurzel. So this story is supposed to model what we call the climate talk. It's a conversation that a caregiver, parent, clinician has with a young person, and we model it through the journey of a young squirrel. For Coco, Pine Park was perfect because it was home and she loved it, just as it was. One day, Papa Pecan got mail from his sister, who said that a fire in her forest just missed her. Dear Coco and Pecan, I write to say hi. These fires are bad, but don't worry, we're fine. We're staying with friends, though we may need to move to find a new home if things don't improve. I'm scared of these fires. They get worse and worse. I'm scared climate change is changing our earth. That's all for me now. I miss you both so. With love from Aunt Hazel, XOXO. My name is Jeremy Wurzel. I'm just finishing up medical school here in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And my background's in geology, but I also study pediatric mental health. My fiance is an environmental science PhD student at a children's natural history museum at the Academy of Natural Science here in Philadelphia. And so we had lots of conversations about how to communicate challenging topics to young people. And the idea for this story arrived from a conversation that Lena, my partner, had with a student that she was working with. A young five-year-old girl came into the academy. My fiance was having a little booth about climate change and she said oh let me do you know about climate change and the caregiver of this young person kind of rushed over and said oh we don't talk about that yet and when lena came home and, and and told me about this story it called into mind a lot of the conversations i have about birds and the bees death and divorce dying all of these things that are challenging for young people to process emotionally and it really called into question how we navigate this conversation. And after digging into it, there's not a lot of resources for families and caregivers to really pursue this. And so we realized that there was a major gap that we could fill. I, it's hard to control when your child hears about climate change, whether it's on part of the news or in our book, we have an aunt who experiences some climate disaster and writes a letter. And this really manifests an anxiety in young Coco. And what we try to do is throughout the book, embed psychoeducation. So this was written by a team of psychiatrists. We really tried to conduct an extensive literature review on the resources that were available for parents. And we tried to create a narrative that hopefully addresses the psychoeducational steps in, a, in an age appropriate way. We then try to represent what some of these anxieties might look like. And all the illustrations are done by my fiance, Lena Champlin. At lunch, little Coco could not eat at all or even play catch with her acorn-shaped ball. She ran to her room and slammed shut the door, but didn't quite know what she did all that for. Poor Coco felt worried. Her legs felt like jelly. She felt like those fires were inside her belly. 
And so what we try to do here is create a manifestation of their anxiety to name this anxiety. And so we create this fire creature that attempts to kind of change with her. Papa Pecan asks Coco as they walk through the park, has your worrying fire become a new spark? I get climate change, I'm feeling less scared. What can I do? Are there others who care? Oh, you're not alone. There's others you'll find. There, look, Pepper Possum and kids holding signs. Hey Pepper, what's up? Are you busy today? Come march about climate, we've something to say. Um, and you can see that she's now joining this community of activists, right? And as she does so, this is the next page where they're starting to um, put up a wind turbine in their community, but her little fire is now changing from this scary red uh, to yellow and then ultimately to a blue flame that kind of, again, is this physical incarnation of hopefully the anxiety changing into an empowering feeling. And ultimately, this is the last page. At home in Pine Park, the sun slowly set. What a beautiful place to love and protect. And Coco now knew how to change her scared fire from a flame causing worry to a friend who inspires. Hello, I'm Ivy. I live in Ottawa, Ontario, and I'm 10 years old. Yes, I did read the book. I liked the part about like the earth and its blankets because I felt that that really is true. They go to like this lab and this owl says the earth has blankets and to keep it the right temperature, but with using oil and gas and stuff like that, we add more blankets on top and it's the earth is overheating and stuff. Climate-related distress or climate anxiety uh, is a growing threat. There's a recent article that uh, conducted an incredible 10,000-person survey for 16 to 25-year-olds asking them about their feelings about climate change and climate anxiety. And the results are, are unfortunately not surprising. You know, over half are either worried to extremely worried about their future climate health. Something like 40% are hesitant to even have children because of these ramifications. And so these are things young people are feeling. I liked the part with the breathing stuff because I think that would be very helpful for a lot of people. I personally already knew that exercise and I use it. And basically you breathe in, you count to four, and you breathe out and imagine that you're blowing out candles. And then it helps you concentrate and breathe. The fear, I don't think it'll ever like go away completely because obviously climate change is, I'm pretty sure, always going to be a thing. Um, but yeah, uh, the breathing and stuff like that, it, it does help. It helps. Helps, like in the book, they say like a fire inside you. And it helps cool down that fire, which is the fear and stuff like that. I feel like sometimes being a kid, you kind of feel like you don't have as much power. But like, for example, Greta, Greta Thunberg, uh, she has showed that like kids do have the power and stuff. Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. 
I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. One thing that kept coming up time and time again in my research was this age-old narrative that has traditionally been used to describe climate change. My generation messed up. Good luck fixing it. And that is so inherently alienating, isolating, daunting, but it's so embedded in our culture that like, um, like, well, the Lorax. You destroyed everything. Yes. And each day since the Lorax left, I've sat here regretting everything I've done. I'm not dissing Dr. Seuss. He's such a pinnacle of my, my, my childhood. But, you know, the once throwing the seed to the next generation at the very end of the Lorax is kind of hearkening to that same idea of good luck. The last Truvula seed. You need to plant it, Ted. Yeah, but nobody cares about trees anymore. Then make them care. Plant the seed in the middle of town where everyone can see. Change the way things are. I know it may seem the, the, the growing sensation that I think has to really catch on is shifting that narrative to one that's really welcoming this young generation into a thriving community of activists, politicians, scientists, all thinking about this issue already. Essentially, they're not alone. This is not on their shoulders. They are joining people that are really concerned about this and are already thinking about this issue. Yeah, sometimes there is some pressure because grown-ups are always saying like, oh yeah, you need to fix all the world's problems. But like, I hope that more people, like not only this generation, but the generations to come, try and solve and come up with ways to help and or stop climate change. Oh, that Ivy. <laughs> She's looking for solutions. We're looking for solutions. You know what? I think Ivy should actually tune in to the show if she isn't already, and, and we can look for solutions together. You are listening to What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch, and I'm joined by producer Kristen Nelson. You know, it's really nice to hear that Ivy found some comfort in Jeremy's book and also some really concrete tools for dealing with her fears. Yeah, I agree. I was really moved talking with her. And, and, you know, she's not alone in feeling fear around climate change. That study that Jeremy mentioned found that 59% of the 10,000 young people around the world that they surveyed were very or extremely worried about climate change. That's a lot. It is, but it actually doesn't surprise me at all. And it's it also makes it not surprising that the demand for kids' books about the subject is is up. Um I was I was struck by how much of Coco's story was informed by the psychological research, though. So um, let's try this other book that you mentioned. This is the one that's co-written by climatologist Michael E. Mann. Yes, exactly. And it has a lot of the same themes. Another female protagonist who is overwhelmed by the realities of climate change. But it also includes a science section at the back of the book to help kids appreciate the way climate change is affecting different parts of the world and different species. Have a listen. My name's Megan Herbert, and I'm the writer and illustrator of The Tantrum That Saved the World which I was very lucky to have Dr. Michael E. Mann make a contribution to. This is what we climate scientists predicted decades ago. Um, we said that if we don't stop burning fossil fuels and elevating the levels of carbon pollution in the atmosphere, we will see unprecedented heat waves and wildfires and floods 
and droughts and superstorms. And guess what? That's what we're seeing. It was back in 2013. Um, I was living in Iceland in Reykjavik, and he came there as part of a conference which was aimed to bring together climate scientists and storytellers and filmmakers, of which I was one. And so I went to some of these presentations and particularly was very moved by his one. He's very good at communicating about climate change and really getting to the heart of the issue. What we're seeing now, the models tell us, is baked in. That's what we're going to have to deal with now for years to come. It gets worse if we don't reduce carbon emissions dramatically in the years ahead. Um, And although I was aware of what was going on, I wasn't fully aware until I'd sort of seen his presentation. And I caught up with him afterwards and said, look, have you ever thought about trying to write a children's book about this? Um, I had a one-year-old baby at home and it was just really at the the front of my mind. And uh, he said, I've been thinking about it a lot because his daughter was about five or six, I think, at the time. And he said, the problem is I don't know who to do it with. And so I sort of said, hello, here I am. After approaching several mainstream publishers who were a bit confused by the project because we were trying to do both a storybook and a science book together, and that didn't fit into their neat categories. of They didn't know how to market it. And I said, look, we know what we want to do. We know that to tell this story and to give kids the information they need We actually need all those elements. So we self-published the first edition. And so the edition that's just come out now is actually, in a sense, a second edition, but finally out with some proper distribution. So it begins with a little girl named Sophia, and she's just minding her business and really isn't somebody who's focused on the environment or climate change in any way. And in fact, she gets her regular life gets quite interrupted by an unexpected series of visitors and it starts with a polar bear and then we meet all sorts of um, different climate refugees, both animal and human, from all different parts of the world, endangered species, um, different types of people doing different jobs as well, really trying to get a broad cross-section because of course this is an issue that will affect every corner of the globe. A sad swarm of bees had not one idea. If spring had just come, or fall was quite near. A pale pink flamingo, hungry and weak, bugged a sea turtle whose outlook was bleak. Both were upset that the sights of their nests were being disrupted by unwanted guests. Farmers whose farmland was withered and dry griped with the seaman who couldn't get by. Where had the fish gone? Where was the rain? They wanted to work more, not sit and complain. A large Bengal tiger just chuffed with dismay. Everyone wisely stayed out of his way. And she, of course, is, begins by being sort of upset and dis- feeling disrupted and rejects their requests for help and doesn't know how to do anything about it and is overwhelmed and goes through all the emotions that not only children but also adults go through when they start to realise what's going on. They all turned to face her with hope in their eyes, expecting Sophia to halt their demise. I'm just a kid, what can I do? Someone must help us, it's now up to you. Sophia by this time felt nothing but stress. Her day was disrupted, her house was a mess. She had no idea how she ought to begin to help them all out of the bind they were in. Unable to put up a front anymore, 
she went to her bedroom and slammed shut the door. So that's a section where she's not coping whatsoever and then has to sort of go through the process on her own of, of thinking, why are they doing this? Why are they asking this of me? She moves through that and once she understands that these stories, while th- these things aren't happening to her, they may, they're all interconnected, number one, which means it may be a matter of time before this happens to her as well. And then she says to herself, well, I'm going to try and convert all those feelings of frustration into action. Why do we want it? Why do we want it now? As Greta Thunberg said, we have not come here to beg politicians for change. We have come here to show them that change is coming. There's a young Canadian climate activist, Sophia Mather. The character was not named Sophia after that Sophia. We'd not actually been in touch before. And in fact, the book was written pre-youth climate movement and pre-Greta, so in a sense it was a bit prophetic. Sophia and I have since been in touch. Hi, my name is Sophia Mather. I'm 15 years old and I'm a climate activist from Sudbury, Ontario. So I hadn't heard about the book until I got sort of a message on Twitter and the author, Megan, actually told me that, oh, you're kind of like my real life Sophia. So she decided to send send us a copy of the book, Sophia's Climate Tantrum, and I got to read it and it's a super cute book and I've shared it with uh, some of my younger cousins. I've told them about it and they're really excited because it's a good book for that the type of younger audience, like eight or seven years old. It's really about people finding their voice and moving through that, all those difficult emotions which we experience. And I mean, adults that I know in the climate world are really going through climate grief at the moment. And it's about having to reframe that and say, right, well, what can I do? What's in my power? How can I turn that around and do something else? I like Sophia. I love how she was so open to letting all the the animals and the people in. And, you know, tantrums are usually bad, uh, but when it comes to saving the world, she was in the right place and she, she took action. And I think we need a lot more kids like Sophia and adults like Sophia in this world. It's kind of weird to say it because my name is Sophia, but yeah. <laughs> I always feel a little bit sad that I had to write this book with Michael and... I am, as anyone who's following the climate crisis, it gets harder by the year um, to put a positive spin on things. However, um, I think the most positive thing to come up in the last um, five to ten years is the youth movement. I really hold out hope for the fact that we will have enough um, people in power. The words of these young people will actually affect them to do something in time. It helps Sophia to take action and to protest and do all those things. Uh, So I do think any form of art, including writing, is a great way to empower people to get involved and help them figure out what they want to do. It's something that can really get uh, kids inspired to do something and and throw their own uh, tantrum for the climate and, you know show adults that we want action and especially what Sophia did she she talked to politicians and she got her city to do things at the end of the book so I definitely think that's great 
Well, that was great. I, I, it was so interesting. First of all, I noticed it, Kristen, that in both of those books, the character goes and has a tantrum and you know shuts themselves in their rooms, which is a very kid thing to do. But it was also wonder. It was wonderful hearing from Sophia Mather, who I met a few years ago when she was much younger and already involved in in climate activism. So it's kind of it's really kind of cool the way the book features the same name as her, and she's got this connection to it. Yeah, Sophia even wrote a blurb that's on the book's cover. Gee, she could almost be Sophia, and I think that, that she probably thinks that too. I mean, we, we know we're all going to have to physically adapt to climate change, but I am so struck about how different parts of the culture are also adapting to the massive challenge as time goes by. So, Kristen, thank you so much for bringing us this story and for bringing us the books. Thank you, Laura. Now, if you have any kids' climate books you've turned to as resources for the people in your life, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Our email address is earth at cbc.ca, or you can follow us on Twitter at CBC What on Earth, or me at Laura Lynch, CBC. DMs are open. And stay with us in our next half hour. We'll talk to three authors all tackling climate in their fiction. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You are listening to What on Earth here on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. If you missed part of the show, just head over to CBC Listen. You can catch up on the show, listen to previous episodes, and hear the best of what's on offer from CBC Radio and CBC Podcasts. And if you haven't subscribed to our podcast, please do. So we've dealt with books for some of you younger listeners, but what about climate reads for adults? It was only a few years ago that Indian novelist Amitav Ghosh questioned why writers, himself included, weren't tackling climate change in their work. At its best, fiction inspires, makes us think, and sometimes it even spurs us to act. This half hour, we speak with three Canadian writers who wrestle with the climate crisis. They hold up a mirror to the damage that's been done and envision a path through the dilemmas yet to come. The first novel we profile begins with a scene that's becoming more familiar. A vicious storm brings a tempest of trouble to an idyllic island off the coast of Newfoundland. And climate change is clearly a player in the drama found in the novel Blaze Island. Catherine Bush is the author of that book. Hello. Hi, Laura. It's great to be with you today. I used the word tempest in the introduction just now because, in fact, you use Shakespeare's play, The Tempest, as an inspiration for the book. Why? Well, I was interested in thinking of Prospero and the Magician as a contemporary climate scientist who um, wants to control the weather for the best of reasons because he's desperate to protect his daughter from all the 
the troubles that our climate disruptions might bring. And Prospero in the play creates storms and does control the weather and the world around him. In fact, he's quite a controlling character. And I was interested in the complexities of that desire to protect that leads, you know, a contemporary man to think of technology as a possible savior. And and we are talking about this being cast in probably the near future. So, well, it's actually I would say an alternate present because the technologies that the novel grapples with, solar radiation management as a form of climate engineering, is is actually contemporary. I mean, there's research being done by Canadian David Keith at, at Harvard. Um, but I'm interested in it as a form of magical thinking too, because it's still kind of speculative science, and and yet there's a desire to believe in it, and it and it's that desire to believe in speculative science that's very interesting to me as a novelist. Right, because Miranda's father is in this case the climate scientist who who brought the both of them to live on the remote island after her mother, who is his wife, dies. And you, as you say, you have him developing this technological fix to help cool the planet. And I just want to ask you about that, because not everyone believes technology can or will fix everything. Why was it so important for you to explore it? I was interested in it as a moral dilemma. I was interested in the lure it presents both for a scientist whose desire to explore it is rooted in grief and fear and, and ultimately climate terror. And I've certainly met people like that. Um, I mean, it's also a, a lure for business and, and governments these days, whether it's solar radiation management and the desire to send particulate matter into the atmosphere and create a haze and moderate temperature, or even, um, you know, carbon capture and removal, which exists, but not on the level that we need it, and is still a kind of speculative or conceptual science. And, and so that desire um, to believe in a te that technology will save you is, or save us is really interesting to me as an emotional, psychological state and, and potentially a contradiction. The novel, it's a novel. It's not advocating anything. It's exploring the, the complexities of these emotional and psychological desires. All right. The two protagonists in this exploration are Miranda, the scientist's daughter, and Caleb. They're both young. They're both making their way in a world where the impact of climate change is is really having an effect and bearing down on them and their future. Why did you want to tell the story through the eyes of, of young people? Well, I, I think that, you know, climate disruptions are going to affect um, younger generations even, you know, ever more. But I was also interested, though this is a story with a scientist, a climate scientist um, at, this, at the center, of making the protagonists not the scientists, but the ones who are trying to understand science. And, and also Miranda, she lives on this remote, beautiful island that her father won't allow her to leave. And she's deeply engaged, as is Caleb, with the natural, natural world. But she also doesn't want to know what her father is up to. She doesn't want to think about his depths of fear and grief. And I think we're all engaged in those everyday habits of denial. And so I was interested in, in that as a state of mind to, to write from, even as she's forced as the novel continues to grapple with change and a future that's not going to look anything like her past. And Caleb, what, what's, what, how is he making his way in this world? 
Um, Caleb's a, a young man from the island who whose mother has lived there, or her, her family has lived there from generations, though his father is an outsider, and he's cast as an outsider to a mixed-race outsider. But he longs to create a home on the island, and his idea of the future is very much shaped by by the past. And, you know, he too is forced to realize that he can't use the past as a model for what's to come. Now, I want to ask you, you have also have an Inuk scientist in the book, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what about her and what she represents. Yes, um, um, the, the climate scientist, Millen Wells in the novel, is an, an, an Arctic specialist um, who spent his career up on the Arctic ice. But I really didn't feel I could write about ice without... Um, bringing in, you know, an, an Inuk character, um, Agnes Watson, who is a scientist who studies particulate matter, dark matter in snow and ice. So she's a scientist who lives in Ottawa, but she's from Nain in Nunatsiavut. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I based her on, on, on characters and, and spoke and had Renelta Arluk, the theater, the Inuk theater director, read the novel. Um, and she was a wonderful resource, but it felt important to me to to bring that voice respectfully in into the novel, um, rather than you know having a world of ice that that didn't have any in- indigenous characters in it. And the island itself is also a character, and it's based on a real island, Fogo Island. You've spent a good amount of time there. How have you seen climate change affect the island? Yes, um, Blaze Island in the novel. There is an actual island named Blaze Island in the Arctic, but but my um, Blaze Island is is very much a reimagining of Fogo Island, which of course means fire. I um, mean, I went there over a course of eight years um, throughout the seasons, and you know was lucky enough to have a series of artist residencies in the village of Tilting on the on the far Atlantic side of the island, which became Pummely in the novel, and felt very welcomed by the community. And I asked people about their experience experiences of weather changes and climate changes. And and certainly there's much greater unpredictability of the weather. And sea ice loss is also a big thing. I mean, in in earlier times, sea ice, multi-year sea ice would come down from the Arctic every every spring. Now it doesn't always come. Now it's not multi-year ice. It's just, you know, thin single-year ice. And that's a dramatic and, and very troubling development. I'm wondering why it's important for you to write about climate change as a novelist. I'm wondering what what do you think you can bring to the subject that others involved in fighting climate change can't? I believe that you know storytelling is is actually key to our survival as as a species, and so we need new stories. And when I think of climate fiction, I don't think of it as a genre, but a desire to respond somehow to our existential condition, to acknowledge it, um, and I think, you know, all fiction at its root wants to seduce through story, but also transform through story. You know, if someone were to walk out into the street again, wherever they are afterwards and feel the wind newly or imagine ice, like actually swallowing iceberg ice with 10,000 year old air bubbles in it and be, you know, transformed by imagining that experience, then that would be wonderful. I think we need more wonder and awe, not just, you know, despair and fear. Wonder and awe and care are what are going to transform us. And maybe hope too, because without spoiling things, you do end the novel on a hopeful note. Why was it important for you to finish the story that way? 
I think hope is important, but actually there's this wonderful writer named Sarah Jaquette Ray who wrote a book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety. And she talks about replacing the idea of hope with desire, that hope is a more passive state, whereas desire leads to purpose and action. And I hope the end of the novel sends readers out into the, into the world with a desire to see more, pay more attention to the natural world, imagine how we need to transform ourselves in stories. Okay, we're going to leave that dangling out there to tempt all those those readers to come get your book. So, but this is our books episode, so I'm wondering just finally, can you share any recommendations for, for other pieces of climate fiction that, that you've read recently that you would recommend? Okay, well, I know that you have David Hubert on the, on the show, and I just want to do a shout out for his extraordinary um, hallucinatory title story, Chemical Valley. And also mention Daryl Wetter's novel, Our Sands, which is the only Canadian novel I can think of that addresses the Alberta oil sands. Um, Lydia Millet's The Children's Bible, which brings dark comedy to climate fiction. And I feel that that tone of dark comedy is so, or comedy of any sort is, is so essential um, to figure out how we, how we move ahead. Um, and also a shout out to Wab Gishig Rice's amazing Moon of the Crusted Snow. Um, Wab and I just did an event together in Germany and, and his story of indigenous survival in the aftermath of a, of a blackout, a story of community resilience, I think is, is one that we all need to hear. All right. That's a great list. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Such a pleasure to talk to you. From Fogo Island to the University of Alberta in Edmonton, that's where Premi Muhammad's vision of the future plays out. Her latest novella, The Annual Migration of Clouds, takes place long after climate disasters have wreaked havoc around the globe. A community of survivors cobbles together an existence living on the abandoned campus as they cope with the reality of an incurable disease. Premi Muhammad, hello. Hi, thanks for inviting me onto the show. Thanks for being with us. Your, your protagonist, Reed, she has to choose between staying with her community and leaving to go study at an actual university, which is a dome sanctuary built by wealthy people who formed enclaves to survive climate disaster. I'm wondering what you see at the heart of the choice she has to make. It's the choice that she didn't expect to be presented with, I think, that I, that I wanted to make an interesting choice in the book. She's not a very individualistic person. And the choices that she's had to make in her life generally have been, are you doing something for the good of the community or are you not doing something for the good of the community? I wrote a future with this group of people who are much more collectively minded, almost to their detriment, so that when Reed is presented with the choice to go do something for herself, um, she has a really hard time with it. And I guess I'm curious as to how readers are perceiving that now because we're very individualistic and I imagine most parents now would be like, well, you know, if you got accepted to university, you'd better go. And the idea there is kind of, I think, go to better yourself and make yourself a better person and make choices that will benefit you 
as an individual. And the only way Reed is able to think about this is, well, if I go, maybe I can better my community. It's a very strange choice for her because she's not used to thinking that way. It's a real dilemma. And the other thing that I think it's important to, to point out to listeners here is that is that the community that she lives in lives on the campus of the University of Alberta. Um, and it's, it's been taken over, in effect, as, as a place where people can try to survive. But because um, they are not privileged or wealthy, they are not living in these protective domes. So the, this idea of community what do you think it offers to people as they face the impacts of the climate crisis in the coming years? I hope what it offers is is actually hope. Um, I was thinking of this the other day with those disasters in BC on the coast, towns that had to be evacuated very, very suddenly, and same with the fires over the summer, because I think I saw some government advice saying something like, everybody evacuate if you can. And I thought, well, if I had been in that situation, I actually wouldn't have been able to evacuate. I don't have a vehicle. And for medical reasons, I'm not supposed to drive. So in that case, I would have had to rely on my community to hopefully look after me and get me out of there. And I think that's becoming more and more evident as these disasters become more common, even as the pandemic goes on. It's the larger superstructures around us um, corporations, government can't necessarily protect us and keep us safe and give us resources to live the way that a smaller, more flexible community on the ground can. And I think that's one thing that I tried to emphasize in the book is that no one's looking after anybody. It's more a case of everybody is looking after everybody, you know, the kids and older people and people who are sick and people who are disabled. And it's the structure of the community that is protective. It's um, not just safety in numbers, but also the attitude of our job as a community is to keep everybody safe and warm and, and fed, that kind of thing. Your your book has been described by others as, uh, I've never heard of this before, hope, <laughs> hope punk. I understand that you had to look that up. Um, so, I did. <laughs> yeah, so, so share with us, what, what does it mean exactly? Yeah, uh, marketing put that on there. I had no <laughs> idea what it meant. And I was like, oh, it's another punk, like cyberpunk or steampunk. And I actually, I don't have a 100% good idea what those mean either. <laughs> um, yeah, it was... Uh, uh, Alexandra Rowland, I believe, put it in a uh, Tumblr post, and they said, um, "Hope Punk is the opposite of Grim Dark. Pass it on." So oh, I now started you have doing to some Grim Dark too, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like um, Game of Thrones. Right. So maybe I wrote the anti Game of Thrones, <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah, Hope Punk is not about unbearable naivety or optimism that ignores the facts of the world. The punk part of it is the fighting back against that, I think, and kind of saying, well, we we as characters, we as people recognize that there are very, very major problems, that our lives may be in danger, that our loved ones are in danger, our humanity itself may be in danger, but the way we are going to respond to that is not in the grim, dark fashion with cruelty and violence and ambition and greed. And if we see those tendencies starting to arise within ourselves, our goal is to fight back against them and to make sure that the people around us are safe from them and that we have their support while we're fighting. It's a term that 
I don't know that I'm going to become comfortable using, but if it's a genre of literature, I would like to see more of it. I would like to see more characters and more books acknowledging that these terrible problems and the villains and the antagonists and the systemic issues can be solved together in ways that don't devolve into a bloodbath. How has the book been received so far? Oh, um, I don't read my reviews because everyone told me not to read my reviews. <laughs> but I am hearing uh, from trusted third parties that people are enjoying it, which I think is good, and uh, zeroing in on the idea that it is a climate fiction book that may fit into a larger body of climate fiction, i.e. not a book in which humanity actually solves the problem, but in which we take the hit and roll. And I think that the themes of individualism and collectivism and the ideas of sort of transactionality and what we owe each other out of love or or duty are really resonating with people. And I'm also getting a lot of uh, local friends pinging me to be like, oh, I recognize so many things in this. So that's really nice. Well, well, this is our books episode. So aside from us presenting your book to our listeners, can you recommend any other pieces of fiction with climate change themes that you've read lately? Uh, yeah, I really liked Gun Island by Amitav Ghosh, because to me, it didn't strike me immediately as being a climate change book. Um, but it actually is. It's about the knock-on effects of climate change. It's about climate change affecting the Sundarbans, so the swamps where these people live, and basically forcing them out because they can no longer live there. And then instead of seeming like a climate change book, it seems like a book about um, migrants, about these refugees, and about a society that's asking itself, well, what are we supposed to do with these people? We don't want them here. How will they make a living? They're a burden. Why couldn't they have stayed where they were? And to me, that's the kind of climate literature that I hope we're going to start seeing. So not so much like, you know, the big blockbuster movies that are showing the disasters themselves, but the effects caused by climate change that don't seem immediately evident, such as things like that forced migration or or supply chain disruptions or issues with small local economies or human trafficking or, or things like that. Rimi Mohammed, thank you for your thoughts and your time, and most of all, for your book, The Annual Migration of Clouds. Thank you for inviting me. are listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM and CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Laura Lynch and we do love hearing from you. So whether you're feeling the impact of climate change in your community or you're doing something to combat it, let us know about it. Earth at cbc.ca is our email address. And if you don't mind us giving you a call back, include your phone number.
Valley to Sarnia, Ontario, and a region nicknamed Chemical Valley for its petrochemical plants and refineries. David Hubert's short stories explore environmental dread and creeping climate chaos, but also the power of love and community in a damaged world. Chemical Valley is the name of the collection, and David Hubert joins me now. Hello. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. What drew you to set the first half of this collection of stories in Chemical Valley? Well, I was living nearby in London, Ontario, where I was doing my PhD, and um, I'd met some friends from Sardia, so I went down to visit. It was a beautiful summer day, and the Blue Lake was winding through the city, and it's in many ways this gorgeous, beautiful city until you get down to the area they call Chemical Valley, where there's just a massive amount of petrochemical industry right in the middle of the city. There's giant, massive stacks. There's sort of barbed wire fences and do not enter signs. And there's flares going off in the middle of the day. And all of this seemed to me to be a profound parable for the way all of us live in proximity to toxicity and the way that oil sort of circulates through our society, uh, always in an unseen way as a sort of subliminal presence or like, you know, what I've come to think of as a sort of shadow side of our contemporary civilization. Yes, it seeped into your artistic consciousness. <laughs> the, the characters in the stories, they live and work in the region. Oil is a way of life for them, but they're, they're also seeing the impacts of climate change in their community. Why was it important for you to tell stories about people who make a living in the petrochemical industry? Yeah, that was really, really important to me, and it was definitely partly because I could see the risks inherent in trying to, uh, trying to judge oil. Obviously, in the contemporary political situation, there is, uh, you know, a necessity to uh, move beyond fossil fuel industry. And in that way, the fossil fuel industry uh, presents as a sort of boogeyman of climate discourse. But I also wanted to think in more complicated ways about the ways that all of our lives are entangled in oil and so sort of varying degrees of complicity. And then I also wanted to just recognize that this is livelihood for many people. Um, this is the only thing many people know. For many people in this community, you know, oil is both sustaining them and damaging them. And that sort of seemed to me a complex situation worthy of art. So I just wanted to sort of get beyond uh, the question of good guys and bad guys and get into, you know, get my hands dirty, as it were, with the messiness that is oil and that is petroculture and the different ways many of us live at that, and certainly trying not to demonize sort of oil workers and their families. And their families. Some of the characters in your stories are teenagers. The girls in, in the story called entitled Swamp Things attend climate protests where they, I love this quote, post board selfies of ourselves with air filtration masks on, stacks jabbing up through the background, and, and the stacks you, you speak of there are the smokestacks. What was it like for you to put yourself in the shoes of teenage girls for, for those stories? Yeah, it was fascinating and, and difficult and tricky and everyone listening probably experienced being a teenager is not an easy thing, right? <laughs> Just being a teenager. And then so adding this sort of profound existential dread that all of us are, are dealing with today uh, into that mix seemed to me both terrifying, paralyzing and exciting for narrative possibility. And it was just something I wanted to explore and, and to empathize with. And I'm also, you know, uh, like many people, inspired by youth. We've had quite a few on, on the program, and they are indeed <laughs> inspiring. Um, mm. the, in, in that story, as well as other stories, the characters, they come through in different stories. They're connected to each other. 
And that says something, I think, about interconnectedness. What kind of solution do you think that offers when it comes to the climate crisis? Yes. Well, acknowledging community and trying to form new forms of communities, trying to think through this problem together, trying to think through it in interconnected ways, but also trying to acknowledge that for all of us, climate crisis is sort of a discrete emotional journey. I think all of that's really important. So going through these feelings together and sort of seeking for political solutions together, I think is really important. It also seems to offer you an opportunity to, to have a little bit of humor <laughs> in the darkness in the stories. Um, and I'm wondering how you reconcile those two things. Yes. Well, humor is absolutely crucial to me. I mean, I think humor is uh, a way that we process many, many things. It just offers me a different mode of expression and it tries to break up the tries to break up the dread and the anxiety and these sort of it's a it can be also a way of processing and a way of turning these feelings on their heads and examining them and it's certainly one of the ways that we um that we can be together as people that we can connect as people is is through humor when we laugh right when we laugh that cuts through a lot of a lot of disconnections if you can make a person laugh um perhaps that can be the first and strongest social connection that you can form with with them. So, yeah, I mean, I do think we need, you know, um, Nicole Seymour, who's a writer I really admire, wrote a book called Bad Environmentalism. Mm -hmm. And in that book, she sort of took issue with the whole doom and gloom discourse that usually permeates uh, climate discourse and sort of pointed out that maybe we need to think through some more avenues or, or sort of mine for some more avenues for how to approach this problem and this dilemma, which defines us in so many ways. And humor was certainly, humor and absurdity were one of the things that Nicole Seymour was going for there. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's room for more levity in climate change discourse. And I would love to see, and I hope to try to create new and different forms of, of sort of lightening the load, as I, it were. I imagine, I imagine it's actually a bit of a relief for you as a writer as well. Mm -hmm. You're doing that for yourself as much as anything else, and yeah, empathy is is foremost for me. So I'm I'm really trying to feel through, feel through these these problems and questions. This is our books episode, so I'm wondering if you have any other climate theme fiction that you would recommend to our listeners. Yeah, for me, many classic works of literature have also always been environmental. For me, storytelling has always been environmental. So when I look at the classics, I always read them through an environmental lens as well. But in terms of more recent books, there's actually a nonfiction book called Visit Sunny Chernobyl and Other Adventures in the World's Most Polluted Places by Andrew Blackwell. And that's a book that I'm a huge fan of and that I go back to many times. It's a book of what he calls pollution tourism. <laughs> and um, that was very inspirational for me. He goes and looks at Chernobyl and sort of looks at the exclusion zone and looks at the wildlife flourishing in the exclusion zone. And he just looks at environmental catastrophe and degradation in an unusual, in a comic, in a refreshing, uh, and in an honest way as well, in a, in a way that I think is, is politically real. So, so that was a big one for me. And then I'm also really inspired by Underland by Robert McFarlane, um, recently by Entangled Life by Marilyn Sheldrake. So those are a few that I would All name. All right. Well, there you go, listeners. A big list, but, but put uh, David Hubert's book Chemical Valley at the top of it. It's a great collection of stories. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you very much, Laura. It's really lovely to be here. That's it for us this week. 
The What on Earth team is associate producer Danielle Piper, producers Rachel Sanders and Molly Siegel. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Our senior producer is Manisha Janakaram. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.